<sighs> Greetings and salutations, boys and girls. I'm the Jeff Keeper, and tonight I have a very scary show for all of you. We are going to be talking about things that go in the night. I have two very creepy special guests from a very creepy special podcast called The Offering. The first guest I'd like to introduce is a man that I've known for some time, and his name is Stone Cold Pete, a.k.a. Wolfgang. Sometimes when the moon comes out, he turns into a werewolf. And the other person I'm going to introduce is someone who I just met. And he has a podcast called The Other. The Offering. The Offering. (laughs) The Offering with Jerry Horror. Oh, it's scary stuff. And without further ado, I would like to welcome them onto our show. <laughs> Sorry, I don't know why I'm cracking myself up here. Hey, hey, hey now. What's poppin'? <laughs> hey, how you doing? How you good, doing? how you guys doing? Good, good, good. Yes, Tales from the Jeff Keeper. That's right. That's right, Biz. You got you nailed it on the money. Let me move this little from us icon off of uh Pete's real estate. Sorry, uh, Jerry, you got a little, there's a little schmutz on your, on your screen. I can't really do nothing. Maybe I can put this right here. Actually, now that looks stupid. I'll just keep it right here. Okay. It's doing a little housekeeping. Uh, welcome gentlemen. Welcome to the, the show. I'm so glad to have you on Pete. You've been on once before Jerry, this is your first time. Welcome to my show. Thank you, Jeff. Um, yeah, Thank sorry, go you ahead. for having us, Jeff. We're here once again, dude. Thank yeah. you for having us on your program. Oh yeah, I, I I'm sorry it took so long. I, it's just you know, I, I told I always told Pete. I tell Pete. I say Pete. Sometimes you won't hear from me, but you will always hear back from me. I always get back to people. I just it's just always on my wackadoo time schedule. And you're a busy man. You're a busy I man. Guess. What can I you do? Know. I feel like you're busier than me, man. You're doing like I mean. Pete just put out. Have anybody seen the movie Deathgasm, which is such a fun flick from uh, uh, Down Under in New Zealand? Uh, he teamed up with the uh, creators of, of of the director, I guess, the writer and director of that, and they put out a sequel comic book. Congratulations on that! It's really great. Is that Thank out? You, Thank you, buddy. Thank you. Yeah, it's out. It's out in stores. You can go out in stores right now. Pick up Deathgasm, issue one. That's rad. That's right. And Jerry, please tell me more about the offering. And by the way, if anybody really wants to check out Jerry's offering, what Jerry is offering, if you go down into the description, you can you can go right to Jerry's show, the podcast that he does. Jerry, take it away. Tell us about it. Thank you for having me on the show, Jeff. Uh, it's a pleasure. I think what it is is that the offering as a podcast wouldn't have been able to be done 20 years ago. Um, these are the stories behind the story. There's so many things that we don't know about, like as far as films that got made, you know, 
because now the great equalizer being the internet, a lot of these stories have come to the forefront. Um, for the most part, a lot of films, you know, you want to call it Hollywood at large, you didn't really know things unless studios or specific talent or directors wanted you to know them. So now we kind of have access to all these people who have worked on all these great movies and we're, we're getting it's the story behind the story. Um, Jerry, I, I didn't want to cut you off in the middle of the, the spiel, mm-hmm. but your, your, uh, your mic is a little scratchy. There's some sort of, uh, Oh, what's happening? It's like it's like sizzling and crackling. Do you know what it is? It's the beard. Are you getting any feedback now? Yeah, it's the mic. Maybe you, maybe mic. you could maybe you, you could unplug the headphones. Yeah, it's okay. This I don't is, want. This is what it's gonna sound. Well, hold on. It's. Okay. We lost Jerry. We, we lost, lost him. You. Jerry, we lost you. No, come back. Come back, Jerry. No, you're muted. Jerry, I, I can't hear you, buddy. You, here's what's going to have to happen, Jerry. Um, I have to kick you from the session because Melon Studio is just whack like that. Come back in. Use the link. Click the link. Come back and uh, connect, reconnect your microphone configuration. It does this weird thing when you disconnect a, a, a cable. I was doing a show the other day, and I was, like, hesitant to end the show. Oh, no. Now we have freezing. Oh, no. There he is. There he is. Okay. Um can you yeah but you can hear us right all right so so that's what i'm saying i'm gonna i'm gonna boot you from the show come back in reconnect your your mic situation we'll let you back in and we'll keep going okay so we'll wait just a few moments while while jerry does that jerry i'm kicking you real quick jerry will be right back he's coming right back let's say hello to everyone lizzie graves is here lizzie how are you been a while angus of course angus is here angus good to see you and 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 yes, and Biz is here as well. You kind of sound like a cross. You kind of sound like a cross between Bullwinkle and the Pumpkin Rabbit. That's not a bad thing for you. For you. Okay, okay. That's. I'll take it. I'll take what I can get. Um. So just a sort of in honor of of Jerry's podcast, I guess it's very a very fitting uh, sort of um, idea is that we have each gathered. Uh, five or so um, obscure horror facts to uh, share with each other, kind of like spooky campfire tales, right, Pete? Well, yeah, the thing is that uh, between the three of us, we're all obsessed with horror. Right. Um, I, right. I am, the, I am the, produ- the producer of the offering. So Jerry, I've known Jerry like my whole life pretty much, and I produce his podcast. But his, his podcast is special because like he's the only one on the show. He doesn't have guests normally, um, but he pontificates about facts, yeah. hard to find facts about movies, mostly 80s and 90s. Um, not just, it's uh, mostly horror, but always genre. That's the tagline. Right. And he's back. Um, and he's back. He's back and he's, uh, let's hear him talk. Hey, it's me, your boy, Jerry Hara. Yes. Oh, that's great. That You, you sound, you sound creamy as hell that's perfect that's perfect okay yeah just frosty (laughs) love it love it um okay so we're gonna go around much as i was just saying just like if you were telling campfire tales we're gonna go around in a cipher and each let off a fact maybe we'll talk a few seconds about the fact we got to keep it going oh shit we're going right into it man there's like no no lube we're just 
No, no, no. We can't have a little loop. I'm just talking, talk, just you know, introducing what the thing is. But the idea oh is that God. we, we just we, we're gonna go, we go around and around and okay. around like a merry-go-round, um, you know, because what that eventually leads to is, you know, it leads to you know discourse and conversation and and whatnot. So that's good. That's good too. Um, Jerry, uh, besides the offering, what did you decide to do the offering? What made you decide to, uh, to, to, to get into this? I've, I felt like there were 10 billion other white guys with beards, with podcasts. Yeah. Like, fuck it. I might as well do one too. No, uh, really what happened was it was one of these things where I'm really big into research and dissecting film in general. So I started realizing, like, wait a second. I'm like, I really need to kind of channel some of this into some kind of proven art form so that it's not just crazy guy looking stuff up on the internet, you know? And um, the further I've gone with it, the the more I enjoy it. I enjoy the research, you know? Nice. That's great. Can I I go into, like, how it all started, Jeff? Please. Uh, I know, I know your your listeners and your your viewers really want to get into the horror facts, but like <laughs> just a, little, a little quick background on Jerry and I's relationship, please, please, so, please, or our friendship, you know, our working relationship, but our friendship. So um, <clears throat> I've known Jerry since high school and since the '90s in Hopog High School, Long Island, and Woo! and uh, you know, uh, Jeff, you know, I make films, and uh-huh. Jerry has been in them. He's been in a couple of my features. He was in um, a punk rock feature called Freaks, Nerds, and Romantics. He played the CBGB's bouncer. Um, oh. And he's also been in um, The Gooligans. He's been on my show, The Gooligans. Oh. He's played, like, uh, he's played a, a lucha, well, he's played a luchador. He's played um, uh, a villain. He's played like a, a, a luchador villain, uh, amongst other things. But Jerry is multifaceted, multi-talented. He is a rapper. He's a- what? He's a yeah. He's a he's a he's like a you rap presence or you actually rap lyrics. I directed some of his music video videos. Um, That's great. That's cool. But when about two years ago, when the pandemic happened, we were all sitting around like doing like we we're like, what the fuck's going on? What are we doing with ourselves? That we couldn't. There was like we, were, we felt helpless, and yeah, I just started talking to Jerry, and. He he had a podcast a long time ago. I had a podcast that you were on, Jeff, called Pitch It Movie Podcast. Great podcast, such Thank a good you. podcast. Thank you, and and Jerry's been on it. And tell, um, tell people real quick what that podcast is about, too. So the Pitch It Movie Podcast. Um, the setup of the show is that that's how uh, we met. We met because of that podcast. <clears throat> yes. So uh, I co-hosted it with uh, my friends Sean King and Will Pintarch, and we had a job working for Mister Hollywood. Um, which is he's the lord of all Hollywood. He green lights or red lights um, everything you see in film. Mm. But we worked in we worked in his building, the six 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 building in New York City. But we worked in the very basement of it, where we meet. We would meet once a week to pitch an original movie uh, based on the guest who was on the show. It was pretty much an improv game where um, a guest would come on the show tell us their life story or tell us what <laughs> they were interested in. And we would just be like, you know what? You've inspired us to create this movie. When Jeff was on the show, I just, just met him. He came into the studio, went into the basement and he's like, do you guys hear about this fire festival? And we, 
And that's when the news broke about Fire Festival. That's how long it, it was. It was like the day it was happening. And, you know, that's kind of what's fun about this improv game is that you almost what you do is you're 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 on the fly, you're writing with with a bunch of people and you can wrap current events into the the writing and fire fire festival just happened and so it's like it just led and you can watch that episode i actually i stole that episode put it on this channel it's on this channel although Perfect. there's also official uh pitching movie podcast uh network and show and things too so go and go check that out it's just really please really great. do yeah. yeah and 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 to finish off on that Right. We have an hour to do that. And we came up with it like a Nicolas Cage. Yeah. Stephen King. John Travolta was in there too. <laughs> like directed Rob. by Werner Herzog, written by Stephen King, starring Nicolas Cage. Mm -hmm. And Jerry actually pitched one of our favorites called I Am Cage, which is like a foul. Oh, that was movie. you, Jerry. Wow. Jerry. So um <clears throat> yeah, so but that that ended a few years ago and Jerry had his own shows and we were just sitting around all sad about the pandemic. And I was like, Jerry has a very distinct voice. And it's it's a very as you as you will listen in a, in a, a few moments, it's very husky, but it's he's a great storyteller. And um, the movies we love, there are amazing stories behind the store, the movies. And Jerry goes into deep research and he pontificates about um these movies that we love like not only just not only like nightmare on elm street but like kick uh blood sport like movies like that but he'll tell you within an hour the stories behind the stories it's great right there and it's like he's got i i i, I knew he had like this amazing talent and i had to put it out there so um i'm a silent partner on his show because he's the only voice he only he's the only one that needs to be heard on on the offering Right there. <laughs> you're about to find out. Oh, you shit. You done fucked around, Jeff. Now you're about to find out. I'm about to find out. I'm just letting you know, heads up. I think we're just going to have to roll with it, but your mic is uh, it's it's scratchy again. It's doing the same uh, mojo that it was before. So maybe it wasn't the microphone. It was something else that's causing it. It's a signal thing. I don't know. It's fine. We, we, can, we can hear you and everything. I just want to give you a heads up about that. I don't know if they see if there's something that maybe comes Maybe you, you should close some of the porn tabs on your on your computer, Jar. That could be that could be uh helpful in it could be helpful. In any case, let oh. us let us begin. Um and you know what? I'm gonna actually I'm gonna start us off. I'm I'm going to take the first round and set the tone here. And um this is Okay, I guess this isn't exactly a fact as much as it is maybe a hot take, but it is factual in its uh, in its sort of POV. It's one of my favorite little horror factoids. I kind of, you know, the thing about horror factoids and all this sort of stuff and these stories, these stories behind the stories, just all that stuff is that, you know, it's currency. It's currency with horror fans, right? And it's currency with... You're, you're making conversation and you're talking. And if you're a good linguist or conversationalist and you know stuff, you know, it's like you, you just, you swap stuff, you swap it, you, uh, that, that whole sort of thing. So in any case, I'm starting off with the fact that um, return of the living dead is just as much of a sequel 
to Night of the Living Dead as Dawn of the Dead is a sequel to Night of the Living Dead. Um, Return of the Living Dead, one of my favorite horror films ever, one of the most meta horror films ever, um, uh, just really, really meta in that basically it is technically a continuation because the story that happens in Night of the Living Dead uh you know happens before the events of return of living dead they just changed all the facts around it It became a fictionalized movie movie was um originally the idea was 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 heralded by john russo before it was rewritten by dan o'bannon of aliens fame uh so he kind of changed the whole thing and then he he turned it into night of living dead being a movie within the return of living dead world um but it still makes it the other official sequel to Night of the Living Dead. <clears throat> that's an opinion or a fact? Um, I'm yeah, that's an effect. That's a fact. <laughs> that's a Jeff fact. I love how Pete so, Pete so subtly is like, uh, that's an opinion. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's yeah. I thought that that's a good fact. That's like a factual. It's a fact. It's he wrote he it's continuing the story from you know within the the story you know it's a it's kind of a fact okay maybe it's a little bit maybe it's a half fact did they uh, ever say did they ever yeah. say why there were zombies in night of the living dead um the venus probe because in return of return of the dead is like toxic like that toxic uh right in return of living dead it's two four five trioxin gas that's in the barrels but that's why that's what makes it so interesting so long before the human centipede part three you had <laughs> return of the living dead as a, a sequel and the yes it's a factual sequel to night of the living dead pete because this the damn title is return to the return of the living dead and it's it's called Return of Living Dead because it's a continuation. <laughs> Angus Angus in the comments says I would call that a personal fact. Very <laughs> uh, very politically stated, Angus. Fine, fine. It's a personal fact, but that's my fact, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> I dig it. Any, any opinions, Jerry? Look, man, I love Return of the Living Dead. It's one, it's one of my favorites, honestly. It's got, you know, it's got a great soundtrack, uh, great effects, great kills. You got Linnea Quigley. She's naked and dancing. What is not to like about Return of the Living Dead? Yeah, dude. Yeah, that dancing scene by Linnea Quigley sells it, sells it right there. If you oh, know, you know. Oh, yes. All right, who's going to outfact me with the next fact? Go ahead. You go ahead, Jer. Okay, so let me do a little bit of table setting because that's that's how we do the offering. Uh, the year is 1988, and 20th Century Fox is trying to do a sequel to Predator, and Schwarzenegger's kind of got them on the hook. He's like, ah, he's like, I want more money, so he keeps asking for more and more money. And Cameron, James Cameron, at that time is like, listen, he's like, I've got a really good idea for Terminator 2. He's like, we, we really need to do this. This is what this is going to be the move. So he, he they say to Schwarzenegger, they're like, listen, we're going to give you a good co-star. We're going to give you Patrick Swayze. It's going to be, you know, like kind of like a buddy comedy in 
in modern law, well, future Los Angeles. And he's like, I don't know, I need 250K more. And this is what Cameron told Schwarzenegger to do. And 20th century was like, uh, it's a bridge too far. We're not going to give you the 250K because they just wanted to call his bluff because they felt like Schwarzenegger was taking over the production as it is. So like, yeah, well, fuck it. We're not going to pay him. We're not going to pay him the 250. So really, that's all it came down to. Schwarzenegger would have done the second film. Now, where it gets a little bit wonky is, I mean, obviously we know history works out. Schwarzenegger goes with James Cameron. They do Terminator 2 Judgment Day. It's like one of the greatest movies ever made. Um, so Fox is just trying to save Predator 2. So they're like, okay, so we've got Swayze in place. We need a star, a bigger star to anchor it. And like, that's how, you know, a couple of years makes a big difference. He was just, you know, hot off of um, Dirty Dancing. He's, uh, that next year, he instead of doing Predator 2, Swayze did Roadhouse. So everybody's in a good spot. They're like, let's get Steven Seagal. And Steven Seagal was like, well, I feel like it should just be me and not Patrick Swayze. And they're like, well, we kind of signed Swayze on. So, and if you see, like, if you see Steven Seagal, like, on Homeland Soil, you might want to might want to call the authorities. The guy right now is like an enemy of the state. He's a big Putin backer. He's a big, uh, he's a big anti-Ukraine guy and, and possible sexual trafficker, Steven Seagal. But back in the late 80s, early 90s, he made some really good movies. And um, he decided, no, I'm not going to do this. So they finally plugged Quarled. Um, they, uh, you know, my my good friend from Lethal Weapon Two. What's the actor's name, Pete? Murtaugh. Uh oh, friggin' Danny Glover. Yeah, Danny Glover. Daniel Daniel Glover. They plug Danny Glover in, and they say, "All right, no matter what happens, whether it's Seagal or Swayze, you'll be the co-star." They lose Swayze. They lose Seagal, and they're like, "Fuck it." We're making Predator 2 with Danny Glover. And that, folks, is how that happened. <laughs> well, I mean, it makes sense because it's they're both produced by Joel Silver. And Joel Silver also produced Lethal Weapon, which starred Danny Glover. And, you know, it takes place in this. It's basically a, a it's a it's a it's a procedural. It's like a it's like a action procedural instead of an, a comedy procedural with Predator. Instead of uh, and it, it's a great it's a great sequel at that and the I like procedural Predator. yeah it's I, great the, yeah the procedural elements are just as great as the uh, the the predator elements so yeah it's great it's good nice fact bro very factual good facting that was fact <laughs> matter of fact about that one matter of fact what about you Pete what do you got for us I'm not like a horror. Um, trivia guy like you guys, so I try to do my best. Um, I don't want to be a basic bitch here, but I'll do my best. Just picking, piggybacking off of uh, Jerry's Swayze facts. Swayze, Swayze. Um, it's about uh, a fact about on the set of Ghost. How mm. actual ghosts were seen on the set of Ghost. So Ghost with Patrick Swayze was shot on the Paramount lot, uh, the same lot, the same uh, lot um, where Happy Days was filmed. And um, Happy Days, later on, in, when Happy Days in the 80s, 
had Poltergeist star, uh, st uh, diminutive star Heather O'Rourke oh. on the cast. And as many of you know, Poltergeist uh, is, is well known as a, a cursed film, right? Uh, many cast members have died tragically, including Heather O'Rourke, who died as a child. But uh, during, even during the Happy Days times, or or not the Happy Days times, but she was a cast member. Um, they said that she, they would see her play, her, her spirit playing on the lot, and uh, her favorite place to hang out would be was the catwalk above, above the lot, and they would just so. Uh, that's it. That uh, while they were filming Ghost, the ghost of Heather O'Rourke was seen. That's creepy, man. <clears throat> Seriously. I mean, it's creepy when you have ghosts, but a, the, the ghost of a child goes way, goes way up. Yeah. It's unfortunate. Like, you know, I, I, it's kind of sad that this this young child they, they kind of use her as kind of like a legend or an urban legend in, um, you know, Hollywood history. Um, but yeah, that, that movie, like Poltergeist is amazing. Um, you know, the other, the, her sister on, in the movie was murdered by an, uh, a, uh, an ex-boyfriend who like stalked her. Right. She was the sister of, uh, the actor from, uh, American werewolf in London. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. My sister is uh, a werewolf. <laughs> But yeah, all sorts of stuff like that. Yeah, we could. I spent. I bet we could talk like an hour about poltergeist. <laughs> oh, 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 oh! The bodies, the bodies were real. The cadavers were real Cadab corpses yeah. in the uh, in, in the pool. Mm -hmm. Actually, for this one, this one's kind of this one I got is kind of. I don't really know if it. It's not really. It's more genre than it is horror, but it is. Oh, is it mostly horror? Always genre? Just like the offering? Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Um, this is uh, a fact that uh, kind of breaks my heart um, a little bit because it makes me kind of think of like what could have been. So initially, um, Bruce Campbell was in consideration for the role of Dr. Peter Elliott in Congo. Peter Elliott is played by Dylan Walsh mm. and... Um, if they had, they didn't end up going with Bruce Campbell, but they liked him enough to give him the part of Charles, who, who's the, you see him in the opening and he's eating the chocolate bar and he gets taken and he goes missing. And we find out spoilers on a, you know, uh, to almost a 30 year old movie that, uh, that Charles played by Bruce Campbell was killed and found the, the, the diamonds of the lost city of Zinge. And of course, those diamonds end up getting put in a diamond laser, and they're used to slice cannibalistic, uh, ugly-looking gorilla monkey warriors, you know, in half. And uh, um, what's what's really a shame about this is the what if, because I really want to believe that if Campbell had Campbell would have changed the tone of the entire film you know, playing off of both Tim Curry as well as Ernie Hudson. I mean, what a combo you have right there. You got Ernie Hudson as like the right-hand man, you know, with the quick one-liners. You have Bruce Campbell, whose sidekick is literally a sign-languaging 
gorilla that he's trying to get back home and ends up fighting a bunch of, as I said, cannibal, you know, gorilla guardians guarding, guarding diamonds. And then of course, you know, he gets a hold of the laser and he's just doing his, you know, his ash thing with the laser shooting, shooting monkeys left and right. And just like, what could have been? And, um, I, you know, when I think about the alternate history, had that casting choice gone down as it should have, uh, mm-hmm. I like to imagine that Congo would not, they wouldn't have aimed for Congo to be a, a blockbuster film. They would have, it would have given it, it would have, uh, Campbell's cult status as Ash from the Evil Dead would have given Congo a more of a horror bend. Perhaps they wouldn't have tried to release it over the summer and instead gone for like a nice fall release during the Halloween season, you know, change up the trailer and whatnot. And then that would have rebranded or reinvented Bruce Campbell uh, as, you know, a, basically a horror version of Indiana Jones. And maybe, yeah, maybe you get him as like the mummy in the mummy in Brendan Fraser's. I mean, there's just so much that could have happened and we will never know. I think the biggest problem that Congo had was it was it was a Michael Crichton property, and I think it it wasn't Jurassic Park, you know, because you yeah have, they were chasing Jurassic Park, they were chasing those yeah. Dino Bucks. And Congo is a really fun movie. It's got a lot of great practice. Love, Con- love Congo, love it's, it. It's pulpy, like it's got a lot going for it. And like anybody, obviously, have some listeners who might not have seen it, or you have some younger listeners. Definitely check out Congo. It's worth your time. It's fun. It's a fun movie. Right? Absolutely. <laughs> What's going on, Ema? How are you tonight? Hello. Um, Pete? Right. Missed opp- missed opp- missed, sorry, just following up, just missed opportunity. Would have loved to see Campbell and a gorilla oh. franchise. Oh, Ooh. my God. Please. Yes. Like, it would be like... The Congo franchise was completely like, well, the Jurassic Park franchise completely went, you know, sideways and it became its own thing. And I feel like even though Congo was a Crichton property, they would have just done done, done their own thing with with Campbell and, and a gorilla. The, um, the gorilla and Campbell would have gone to space because it had to do with satellites and like the diamonds and the laser. It eventually would have turned to like a Moonraker situation with a space gorilla and Bruce Campbell. Yeah, just put me on the demand. Put me in the uh, multiverse where that exists. Give me all the merch. Uh, I'd be wearing it. <laughs> that's that's all we want. You know what? That's that would be that would, if you were a guest back on Pitching Movie Podcast, we'd spend an hour uh, mapping out the franchise of you know um, uh, Robert Rodriguez's Congo franchise. Oh yes, <laughs> with Robert Rodriguez at the helm. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Excellent, Pete. Excellent. I love it. Love it. Um, oh yeah, my next fact is Yeah, you're next. Wait, my all my shit is fucking tragic. It's all tragic. <laughs> so this is about the Twilight Zone movie. Oh, I know. I already know what you're gonna say. The minute I the minute you yeah. say Twilight Zone movie, I was like, ah, I know what you're gonna uh, say. Yeah, yeah. All right. But the Get basic the basic bitch fact about the Twilight Zone movie is about Vic Morrow. Yeah, not just Vic Morrow. It's not just Vic and the Morrow. children, the children, and the children, yeah. and and um, if you don't know, if you're not, if you're not a basic bitch, but uh, the John Landis uh, film 
the biggest um, piece of shit in the history the, of making movies, John Landis. The John Landis portion. Every chance the, I get. Every chance I get, John Landis, biggest piece of shit who ever lived. Go ahead, Pete. Tell because, him why. Because of, because of this. But, yeah, um, tell him why. Tell him why. <laughs> well, this isn't my fact, but uh, this is oh, going, oh, oh. going on. Effect, but, uh, so uh, the Twilight Zone movie was an anthology. Nice mug, Jerry. Show him that logo. Show him that logo. Oh, pretty. Look at that. Thing. That's how we roll, baby, at the offering. Hell yeah. Mm. So the John Landis uh, portion uh, portion of the anthology had um, Vic Morrow. Um, I was actually I actually just watched uh, Crazy Larry, Dirty Dirty Mary last week. Ah, you guys ever yeah. see that with with uh, Peter Fonda? I've seen everything. And Vic Vic Morrow, yeah, Vic Morrow's in that. Which he spends most of his time in a helicopter, chasing oh. a manager. Jesus. <laughs> so, but yeah, on the set of uh, Vic Morrow and two young children uh, were dangerously close to special effects, a, a crashing helicopter. Oof. And he was beheaded and the children were also killed. And um, John Landis was ultimately found not responsible in the court of law. But Criminal. Criminal that that happened. You are the director of this film. So, I just want to say also as a side note, fucking Steven Spielberg left the country at this point because uh, they were doing pre-production on Temple of Doom and his lawyers advised him. So just actually, I've heard a rumor. I don't know if it's true. By the way, John Landis, uh, Steven Spielberg was uh, absolutely done with John Landis after this whole travesty went down. Of course. And it was like, I never want to like speak to you ever again, blah, 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 blah. But allegedly, allegedly, there's no way to prove that this is true. But there, it, it is alleged that Steven Spielberg was on set that night when it went down and was swept away and disappeared from the, he was powerless. I mean, it wasn't like he was, you know, he wasn't the supervising, uh, uh, I don't think he was the producer. Maybe actually, oh, yeah, he was. He was. He was they, they, the studio, everybody involved, the lawyers got Spielberg out of the country, and because they they had already they had already begun like they were in heavy pre production for Temple of Doom, but they were like, yeah, you're gonna go to India. Yeah, he, I want to see. I want to see this version of the Fablemans. Yeah, uh, I yeah. See that. I want to see, like, right. That, <laughs> got to get Spielberg out of the country into India. That's where little Sammy Fableman is is witness to a to a murder. Um, but like my, the fact that I found was I had no idea that Vic Morrow's daughter was Jennifer is Jennifer Jason Lee. What? And, yeah, they were saying they were saying her um, and her big debut film, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, um, premiered merely a few weeks after his his crazy death. Dude, it's freaking insane, man. Like later, like, so they were filming uh, Twilight Zone, like during the summer and Fast Times was premiered like the end of the summer. Um, so, yeah, that's a crazy fact. So the whole thing was like just, just the fact that Jennifer Jason Lee is um, who's a legendary actress on her own. But uh, yeah, her father was Vic Morrow, who died in Twilight Zone, the Twilight Zone movie. Damn. Whatever you do, do not look up that. Do not go on YouTube and look that up. Well, oh, the, the accident? No, yeah, you want to know something? Thing, Everybody, yeah. Well, I'll tell you something. You know what? You know what just boils me boils me rotten about the whole situation is that 
you know, it is kind of, it does kind of tie into what happened with Alec Baldwin now oh, yeah. uh, in an extent. And look at what Alec Baldwin is facing manslaughter charges. And now whether you say that he should or shouldn't, I'm not here to debate that. That's not the point of it. The point is that, that somehow John Landis managed to avoid as the director of overseeing the production and the stunts and everything somehow managed to not um not do any jail time not be charged with anything uh, you know when coming to america gate came out he gave tickets to the premiere to the jury who sat on his trial and claimed he was not guilty wow. oh yeah it's all in the book go look all this stuff up john lands and when i love how people call People hate John Landis's son because he's also a, just a ginormous piece of shit. But like, go look up, go look up, um, uh, go look all of it up, and you'll see that the apple does not far from fall far from the tree. And things, when that happens, things get sticky. And you know what else is sticky? Do you guys know what else is sticky? What? Stickers! Stickers are sticky! And this channel, this channel is sponsored by Riotstickers.com. Look at all the stickers they printed up for me. I'm drowning in stickers! The Riotstickers.com is the sponsor of this channel, and we are running a very special deal with them. This deal is absolutely insane. If you have some sort of creative endeavor, if you have an icon, a logo, an image that you need printed up, you can get a thousand stickers for $79. That's seven cents per sticker. These stickers have a UV coating. They're printed on vinyl. So they're waterproof. They're sunproof. They'll last twice as long as leading competitor stickers. They have a shelf life or they have a outdoor life of about four to five years, man. And I'll tell you, I've stuck these stickers around and I come back, I check on them because I like to test out. I like to test this on. They don't just do stickers. Look at this banner. Look at this banner that Sharpie printed up for me. They do T-shirts. Look at this. I have buttons. I have bottle cap openers. There's there no end. Here's a magnet. Is there no end to the madness of Sharpie Riot and Riotstickers.com? So what you're going to do, the only way to get this deal, and I, I, I dare you to go on the internet and try and find a better deal. You're not going to. Not for the value from an independent uh, from an independent businessman who's personable and treats your designs with such tender, loving care. You go to riotstickers.com backslash from us. That's it. There's no promo code. It's down in the description of this video and every other video like it. You go, you, you click on that link, and that's going to bring you to the deal. That's the only way you get this deal. Again, a thousand stickers for $79 at seven cents a sticker. Let's play the less than Jake. 60 second theme song before we continue with hearing uh jerry horror's next horrific fact if i could just find it right here where the hell is it it's somewhere it's somewhere i'm stalling for time now it is I see it. it's right, right.
Yeah, baby. All right. What do you got for us, Jerry? There were two very different versions of the 1988 film Child's Boy. Um, Tom Holland, director, there, we didn't know this up until recently with like the Scream Factory, Shout Factory, uh, 4K release. We didn't know a lot of this stuff. Um, there was a lot more shot for Child's Play, the original. The, like, they essentially, there's, there's a version of this film that is much more a thriller and never really gets you to the, you know, they shot like an additional hour of footage, all usable stuff. That was more about Andy, um, the loss of his father. It, it was it was a much more heartbreaking movie to watch with a child actor. It was almost like there's a version of this that Tom Holland might have been going for an Oscar for that little kid, you know. Um, ultimately, the the studio like at that time MGM really needed a hit. This was before they were going to sell to Turner. This was kind of like their last gasps in the 80s. And there was like two different films being made. One film was this dazzling visual effects film with a a puppet. And the other was this thriller slash psychological drama with a child. Um, And and they were always, that, that was elements that were always competing and that Holland had wished would join together. The original finale of the film, which is funny because Home Alone would come out like two years later. Um, Home Alone, the, the finish of Child's Play was originally Andy fighting Chucky with all of these toys like remote control cars. He sets traps around the house. It was like a different finale. And it's funny because uh, I would have liked to have seen that. It just like a year or two later, it gets completely mirrored by Home Alone. Um, the crazy thing is, is that ultimately we found out the original cut of Child's Play ran about two hours and 42 minutes, two hours and 42 minutes. What are we doing? This fucking evil Chucky doll film. You know, we don't want that. Like, look, it is what it is. Uh, studio gets ahead of it. The producers are like, fuck this. This movie needs to be an hour and a half and it needs to play in as many theaters as possible because MGM is losing money like you know by the millisecond um i think ultimately it worked out but it's kind of crazy right like it was almost this three-hour psychological epic and it it sounds like like who thought that was a good idea right right yeah like 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 jeff said i would have not the three-hour version but i would have liked to see that that original end oh yeah yeah just like yeah. a Andy Andy fighting back Home Alone style. As a matter of fact, it sounds like that that stuff got ported into Brian Usna's Silent Night, Deadly Night Part Five, The Toy Maker, um, because it doesn't quite have. Yeah, I mean, there's some similar some overlap there. I would have just liked to have seen some Andy using his toys to fight Chucky. That would have been that would have that would have worked for me. Yeah, I mean, we were, at that point, like, I was a kid, you know, like, you would have been like, yeah, that's how you kill the evil doll. Right. <laughs> but you know what that does? I mean, that takes away the original Child's Play. Child's Play got campier and sillier as the sequels go on. And, you know, they're all helmed by Don Mancini, you know, the writer, the original writer of, of Child's Play. 
and he made them campier and campier and sillier and sillier. But the original one, two, three, they are deadly serious films. And I want to say that part of what makes that first one so deadly serious and so scary in that moment when she opens up the battery cover and there's no batteries in there, it has to be, has to be because they decided to change the tone and not include that ending. So it, it's a, it's a thriller as much as it is a horror film. It's a very well-crafted thriller. It's a great film. I, I love, love the, I'm watching the Chucky series right now on shutter and it's really fun. So. Jerry, you like the Aubrey Plaza uh, Child's Play movie too, right? I really liked uh, Child's Play 2019. Um, it's funny because Megan came she out. In, and Megan she, she, she did yeah. the, mm-hmm. she the remake. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I know that. Brian Tyree Henry. It's got a, It's got a great cast. It was a great, a great remake. I enjoyed it. I loved it. It, you know, it's one of those things. I wish they would have just let it be its own thing and not called it Child's Play. It didn't need to be called Child's Play. It didn't. Nope. Yeah, it's messed up. No. In fact, you know, it's funny they have that Bruce Campbell. Speaking of Bruce Campbell. They have that Bruce Campbell horror film called Black Friday. You could have made it, centered it around Black Friday, had all that same sort of stuff going on, right. and just that could have been Black Friday, and that would have been interesting. So, better movie. That that recent Christmas movie with um, David Harbor. Um, yeah, Violent Night. Violent, yeah, yeah, had fun. that very fun. But it had that that whole running joke of like, are they going to home alone it or what? Right. And then it actually like pays off when, when the Home Alone scene shows up, and it's freaking gory as hell. Yeah, <laughs> in a very funny way. Can I can I just rattle off a rapid fact here? Because this this one just it's it's breaking my brain. Um, so you guys you're aware of you know, and you everybody like a cold open. It's how long you go before you get to a title card or something of that nature. Um, the longest cold open in a horror movie. I know what it is. What do you think it is? All right. Well, okay. I don't want to take it. I don't want to okay. take it away from you, but I think I know what it is. I'll let you say it. But I Wait, know. No, I want to hear what your guess. I want to see if you're right. <laughs> all right. All right. I will. I just felt bad because you were in the middle of telling us the fact, and then I just interrupted you. Is that okay? Can I say what I think it is? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mandy. Ooh. How did they scream? It it isn't. It isn't. Um, because this this freaks me out. Because it's something that you don't think of. Like I've never thought of like what is the longest cold open. But cold opens can be very important in a horror movie because even like if you see stuff like Barbarian, it's like it's like its own little self-contained mini movie. And a lot of horror films do that. Like even like recently, like Halloween ends. There's that whole sequence with the kid in the beginning, and it's like its own little short film, and then you hit the title card. It's Friday the 13th, 2009. 23 minutes and 39 seconds until right. you see a title card. The kids in the, well, the, lead, Mandy, the lead in the woods. I, right. yeah, but I mean, I, to, to argue to argue it, I'm sorry, but it happens halfway through the movie in Mandy. Oof. Yeah, you're right. Um, so I, if you're counting... If Mandy is at least, you know, it maybe not straight up horror, but it's horror adjacent. It's a genre for sure. Um, the you don't see the Mandy title card until he makes the axe, and that's literally almost an hour into the movie, just about an hour into the movie. 
So I would, I, I mean, I would fight, I would argue that fact, but you know, I don't so know. Would that con- if if the if the title comes near the end of the movie, is that considered a cold open? But it's not near the end of the movie. It's the middle right. of the movie. It's yeah. literally halfway through the movie. Um, I would consider that know, like maybe I'd, a stylized a stylized choice, maybe you know, halfway I, through the movie is a. Uh, well, what about 23 minutes into the movie is also a stylized choice then. So I would argue yeah. that Mandy has the longest one. But look at Drag Me to Hell. Oh, love that movie. <laughs> I love that movie too, but the whole movie is a cold open. For the- <laughs> <laughs> and, and people always forget Drag Me to Hell is a PG-13 movie. Yeah. I love, oh, my God. When that time, you know, I'm watching it, I'm going, fuck, no one's getting dragged to hell. What the fuck? <laughs> Just like... And then all of a sudden, design, I know you're a huge sound design guy, uh, Jeff. But, yeah, um, I watched that movie. I saw it in the theaters, of course. Sam Raimi, you had to see his movies in the theater. Um, but the second time I saw that movie was on Edibles, and I oh, literally, thought, I literally thought demons were scratching on my walls. <laughs> the sound design in Drag Me to Hell, dude, watch that movie in Edibles. Surround sound, it's incredible. Uh, I recently found another side fact that um, the movie Megan that just came out, uh, that they were shooting for an R for that too. We're getting it. We're getting an R. No, but they, were, they were shooting for an R, but they realized upon editing that like, if we make a few tweaks here and there, we could probably get more people in the seats with a PG-13. And they referenced Drag Me to Hell as a PG-13 movie that was pretty Oh, successful. really? And they were like, if you know, Drag Me to Hell was a PG thirteen horror, maybe we could make Megan one too. Well, the thing that well, the, what the problem with that, or not the problem, but what happened was they they had a brilliant marketing campaign. They introduced us all to Megan with TikTok dance, and they realized that they were marketing to an audience that was a lot younger than would be able to see the rated R version of the movie. So they chose to do a PG thirteen release because they knew that they would be able to get younger kids in because they were familiar with the Megan dance, which is all part of the plan in the first place. So younger, younger kids, or as the SNL skit posits for the gays, is this the first horror movie <laughs> for the gays? Um, I don't know. I don't know. It could be, it, it definitely could be uh, debated for sure. Happy Thursday, Alberto to you as well. Cheers. Um, who's, who's the next uh, fact Factmeister here. I've lost. I did two. How many did, did you do? Two. I did two, I think. Did I do two? I did three. You did three. Okay. I think it's. I <laughs> the think circle it's, broke somehow. It that, did break. Um, fine. I will. Okay. I, I have one. It is um, shit. I just had it in my head. and Oh, yeah. Right, right, right. Dawn of the Dead. Um, Dawn of the Dead was supposed to be end on a much darker note. And we have to be very careful about the words we use when discussing this ending because YouTube's algorithm will uh, punish us for saying certain words. So I'm going to use different words in order to uh, avoid such penalties. But the original ending of... Of Dawn of the Dead, it's been much contested over the years. Was it shot? Was it not shot? It absolutely was shot. Um, and it's it's lost to time because it was lost in a flood. When 
when Fran goes up to the helicopter at the end and Peter says, leave me, I'm going to stay. I don't want to go. You see Peter uh, take something and put it to his head. And you see Fran open up the helicopter door and to mirror what happens earlier in the film, they actually, it's a payoff to a setup, the helicopter zombie. If you remember early in the film, when the, when the zombie accidentally chops off its own head with the helicopter, that was supposed to set up what, for the dark ending where when she hears the, the shot go off, she throws her head up into the propeller blades and that's the end of the movie. And when they got to the end, they shot, they did a take, they, they did, they did, they did, they did the scene. And I think it was George Romero who was like, I love these characters. We love these characters too much. We have to give them a happy ending. And so they chose instead. So when you watch Dawn of Dead and you can see the exact moment where they just deviate from the original ending, because he goes like this and she puts her head out because she decides I can't go without Peter. And when she hears the pop, she knows that it's over for me and my baby. And so, and apparently that ending was lost to time in a flood. In the, in the I think it was the, uh, God, it wasn't Image 10. I don't remember the, 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 the basement facility where they kept the negative. But um, you'll often hear back and forth. Uh, George has denied that this ending was shot. But Tom Savini, who did all the special effects, as we all know, he 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 adamantly remembers, and I believe Michael Gornick, who sh who shot the movie as well, both um, confirm that that was indeed the original ending that it was shot. George Romero never denied that that wasn't the original ending. He just, I think, he said to the long lines, "We never shot it," which was not true. They absolutely shot it. Lost the time. I mean, like, what was it in twenty fifteen? They discovered like nine minutes of Night of the Living Dead. You know, no, nobody knew that this this extra nine ten minutes existed. Anything's possible. I've seen some weird stills, especially from the Romero stuff. So it, it, it's it's anybody's guess at this point. You know, for sure. Yeah. I'm just like <laughs> Jerry's sound is going like. Fast I know. Yeah, I, I wasn't <laughs> going to say anything, but Jerry, but, uh, Jerry, your your microphone is so something so overmodulated. It's like possessed by a gremlin. So you go like this up in the air. That's an exaggeration, but you go up and down when your voice goes down. It's kind of cool. It's so crazy. You sound, your panel look, sounds haunted. You yeah, know, no, it's cool. I like it. Is haunted. <laughs> I like it. But yes, I, I noticed that too as well, Pete. Sorry, I, I got distracted. We were one. like silent for a second because I was like, <laughs> yeah, it was kind of funny to me. Um, um, Pete, uh, it's your turn. Yeah, mine's just a quick little tidbit, but maybe we could elaborate upon it. But it's about the Dakota Hotel in, in New York City where Rosemary's Baby was filmed. Uh, was also where John Lennon lived, and was yeah, married. that's probably a common fact that people know. But um, yeah, I had no idea. I, you know, I live in I live in the city, and um, uh, I play softball there all the time, across from there in Central Park, in Central Park, and uh, it's like this beautiful Gothic-looking hotel, um, and 
there's a there's a lot of weird things that happened there, including the fact that when John Lennon lived there, he swore he saw a UFO uh, <laughs> there. But um, yeah, uh, Rosemary's Baby and John Lennon, a little connection there. Um, I don't know if I don't know if we can elaborate upon that. That's it. Nice, nice. That's a good one. <laughs> okay. Anyone else got one? I have another one. If you want me to, uh, if you want, it's. I think it's Jerry's turn, but you can go again. Sure, Jerry, you want to go? Yeah, let me just let me just. I got to power through this. All right. Yeah, give give give, give the list. Give the viewers something good. Uh, I don't know if it's good, but it's interesting. Uh, <laughs> no, sorry, Jerry. Jerry, this is what you sound like. I don't know if it's good, but it's interesting. <laughs> yeah. Yo. Yo, man, this is straight up just a regular old iPad. Nothing fancy. I got a regular old shotgun mic. I switched from the headphones. <laughs> I don't know, folks. Maybe it's the broadcast. Maybe it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's so yeah. good. It's so good. It's, it's really like, great. It's like the it's, gremlins are like going like this behind behind the scenes. You're like going, ripping the reel. Like, hey, brother, put the reel oh, back oh, on. What a surprise. We had a motherfucker named Jerry Hara, and all of a sudden, uh, bad and spooky shit started happening. Okay. <laughs> Here we go. Let's go. Um, Brian Woods and Scott Beck, better known now as Beck and Woods' writing team, uh, they were working for Paramount. And Paramount was like, listen, man, we need a really slick follow-up to Matt Reeves' original Cloverfield film. So they're writing and writing and writing. And the studio is just like, these are terrible. These are terrible scripts and they will not get made. Um, little did they know they met through a chance meeting John Krasinski. And he's like, well, what, what have you guys been working on? And like we got the script for Cloverfield too. And that movie ultimately became a quiet place. And it's kind of one of those things where it's like, like Paramount, hated that fucking script but Krasinski jumped jumped on board did a couple little story changes and rewrites next thing you know you've got a quiet place which I think um in the last 10 or 15 years has really been one of the um better science fiction horror apocalypse films but yeah it, it just shows that you know there's initially a studio can look at something and say, this is terrible, but if you have the right person to reframe it or the right collaborators, this proves that, you know, everything deserves a second chance. Even my microphone. Nice. Very nice. Yeah, just to, just so you know, like your microphone is like, like this is like a treasure. Like this is wonderful. <laughs> like I love hearing it but i'm just no, it, yeah, it is what it is for, they're rooting for you jerry in the chats yeah they're saying go for it jerry jerry jerry, jerry. yeah it's really interesting about like the quiet place because or like just the whole quote this whole story of cloverfield in general where it's just cloverfield one was one of those i went to uh like a special screening of cloverfield one back in what 2008 when that movie came out and it was one of those things where it's like free screening for a movie. So you go, we, uh, me and my friend Jake, we went to this bar, and the cast of Cloverfield, Cloverfield One was pretty much all unknowns, um, right at that point. Uh, right. And they're at this bar, and if you remember that movie, it's um, 
it's a found footage movie and but it's like a the beginning of the movie is a going away party for the one of the characters so we jake and i go to this bar and it's a going away party for the characters and all the actors are there and i kind of like recognize lizzie kaplan lizzie kaplan and i were standing next to each other at a bar just waiting for drinks and i'm like this girl is really cute lo and behold we go to the movie and it's freaking everyone there is on the screen i'm like holy shit, that's really awesome kind of marketing thing where they put you in the movie but even like uh 10 cloverfield lane like was that wasn't that originally that wasn't a cloverfield movie and like last minute like all they did was just did reshoots for the end where mary elizabeth winstead just pops out and there's a fucking cloverfield monster there like how genius is that even though like any follow-ups to those two movies have kind of tanked but i i kind of like the idea that a quiet place is part of the cloverfield universe even that though it's not, for me. it's not official right but kind of sideways it's kind of like the side verse of uh, cloverfield they should keep they should keep trying to do like was it cloverfield paradox um i didn't see that one yeah and that, that was another movie that was just another movie that they said hey right got no angle to market it they slapped cloverfield on it I think one of the cool fact, facts about Cloverfield Paradox is that if you time it along with the original movie, when <laughs> when when shit when like the machine explodes in Cloverfield Paradox is timed perfectly with um, shit exploding in the original Cloverfield. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, it's, it's like kind of like the dark, it's like the Dark Side of the Moon, Wizard of Oz. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. Groovy. Rad, rad. Groovy facts. Um, okay, you did. What is that? That's your. Uh, you just did one. Uh, Jerry, is it your turn or is it my turn? I don't remember. It's your. I think it's your turn now. Oh, it's my turn. Okay. Yeah. All right. So here is here is a really great rad fact. So, uh, for years, I have watched. You know what? Occasionally, I have put on Deep Rising. Um, love this movie. Great friggin' movie. Uh, it's a crime that it never got a sequel. Same director, by the way, as both Van Helsing and The Mummy and The Mummy that's Returns. The, this is, that's the Treat Williams one? Yeah, it's the Treat Williams one, right, where he's doing kind of, he's doing a, an Ash sort of ripoff character. The end of the movie, they wash up on that island and something is coming towards them and there's a catchphrase, what now? And I always wondered, like, what did they have planned for the sequel? What was it supposed to be? And as it turns out, that was because they were trying to introduce, long before we had our shared universes, that was supposed to introduce King Kong. That was supposed to be lead into a follow-up movie with King Kong. And they were supposed to have washed up on Skull Island. And it never came about. And it still makes for a really great button it's just a great little like end you know epilogue to the whole situation it totally fits with the movie it's a it's a really fun action monster film you know it falls into so many different categories if you wanted to and it's just got every element you can imagine and uh that dude is just a great director i think he also directed virus with uh with uh jamie lee curtis and uh donald sutherland maybe not maybe not um and I just, I just really, I just really enjoyed that uh, that movie, and I always that that fact always blows me away. So, 
another missed opportunity to treat Williams versus King Kong. Oh man, yeah, that would have been that would. Or have okay, going back to being Pitch It Movie Pete with you, Jeff and Jerry. Yeah, another missed opportunity would be treat Williams, watch treat Williams and uh, his friends washing up on shore, and there is Bruce Campbell. With the Congo gorilla, with oh, yeah. arm. Oh. he's already fighting Skull Island prehistoric creatures. Bruce Campbell team up with Treat Williams. Couldn't ask for anything better. Take it, Mr. Yeah. Hollywood. $11 billion. $11 billion gajillion dollars. That would be perfect. Perfect. I love it. Um, Jerry, floor is yours. That's... This is this is not a this is not a crazy one. If I can open my see what I do is I make little notes in my uh my iMessage iNotes. Uh yeah. So let's see, let's go into oh, this is a good one. Um everybody knows about the classic Stephen King adaptation that Stephen King hates the shining. Uh, directed by the late, great Stanley Kubrick. Um, this is kind of a weird, fun fact that we didn't discover up until about, I think, five, ten years ago. So, when you see the pages in the book, it says, all work, no play, you know, Jack being a dull boy, that whole thing, um, just typed over and over again. And there were a bunch of production assistants and there were people who were furnishing the production and they said they, they still never figured out who wrote all the stuff typed, you know, because back in the week didn't have word processors. We just had typewriters. Somebody typed it over and over and over again. And the rumor or obscure fact is that Stanley Kubrick typed it and it was a way of him having to deal with, everybody and everything that was going on on the set that was a way of himself soothing so he would every night he would write you know all work and no play make jack a dull boy and uh apparently he enjoyed it because he wrote it pages and pages and pages of it but it wasn't just like normal type it, like as as uh, wendy keeps turning the pages they're all kind of they, they get gradually more and more weird <laughs> yeah yeah Right, they get like you know design, yeah. but it's also all work and no play makes that cool. Yeah, and that was all Kubrick. No, all Kubrick. Wow, Kubrick. Wow, what a weirdo! What a weirdo! Wow, you know? <laughs> wow. That should be like a like a hot key. Like every time you get like, there's like somebody says something. If it had, if I had like a, if I had a producer on the show who just like rode shotgun on my show. And just like press the button during like certain things, like wow, <laughs> wow. Fun fact, wow, wow. <laughs> That'd be good. That'd be good. No, that's that is that is crazy. I mean, that's just uh, that's a testament. <laughs> that's a testament to um, that's a testament to a dedicated director who's you know looking into the details. It's always about the little details. Nobody is going to care about the little details as much as the director does. And that is whoa! Fun fact: oh, Jerry no. turned into a cat, and his name was Tom instead of Jerry. That was Tom and Jerry. Yeah, wow! I like I that. that. That's Brooklyn. Terrible joke. Terrible That's joke. Brooklyn the cat. 
Oh, Brooklyn Cat, I see. I see, I see. Um, yeah, Pete, one more. Pete, yeah. it's your turn. Yeah, so um, you guys have seen the original Friday the 13th. From uh-huh. 1979, right? Uh, Sean 78. 78? 80. Oh, 80, 80. Yeah, 80. Um, shot in Blairstown, New Jersey. Have you guys ever gone to Blairstown? Uh, no, but I knew that that was Blairstown, New Jersey. I know someone who lives out there. Yeah, so this fact is about someone who lives in Blairstown. Okay. Um, yeah, so I actually, I last, about a year ago, I actually took a trip to Blairstown. Um, met up with some filmmaker friends of mine. Uh, Jed Shepard, he's a British filmmaker. He produced Host, uh, that movie Host. And our friend Blair Bathory, like, they, they came overseas to do a little trip for like a YouTube show they were shooting. And nice. uh, Sean King and I, we met up with them. And uh, cause I've never been there to the set of Blairstown, but like um, you go there and you just, it's just like walking into the movie. You just start oh, really? like, you just start like picturing your head like, oh, that's the, you know, that scene we ate in the diner, the Blairstown diner. But this, this little fact is about, uh, it was shot on a real camp operational camp and uh a neighbor who lived right there in blairstown their neighbor while they were filming who visited um was one of the yeah was the iconic uh musician lou reed lou reed Reed right next door to the set of the camp and he would visit he would visit his neighbor and hung out with the kids including what kevin bacon and uh, he even like performed for a lot of the actors and just hang out, uh, checking out a low budget <laughs> horror. Film. That's a walk on the wild side. It's that a is small, a, it's a small world. It's a that is a walk on the wild side. That's a perfect way to put that. Um, yeah, that's that's it. Um, okay, for my final fact. My final factoid, it's a kind of a common one, but it is a really great one. And um, and it kind of elaborates into something that I wanted to touch upon earlier. So I figured it's a great way to dovetail into that. Um, you know, most horror fans know that the shape mask from Halloween is based on a really famous actor. Uh, and that actor happens to be William Shatner. William Shatner's face is the face of Michael Myers. And in, you know, and this happens, you know, this happens in scripts in general. You know, things are not like there was no descript. It was the same thing with Scream, was the same exact way when you consider how Scream is the the 90s, the 90s uh, descendant of, of Halloween in many aspects. Um you know, they didn't have an idea of what the mask was supposed to look like. They just knew they wanted a mask. And I love, you know, personally, when I try to write things, like, I don't, there's sometimes, like, details like that. I just don't worry about it. I just figure, oh, it's going to be a detail that's going to get fleshed out when it's time to flesh it out. Now, obviously, there's sometimes when you write, you're writing something very specifically. But in this case, in the case of Halloween, in the case of Scream, that these masks were not and they grabbed these masks and these masks became super iconic in what in any case they were like we need a mask what are we going to do so they grabbed a captain kirk mask from a local shop they cut out the eye holes and that became 
the shape. And I wonder, I don't think it's ever been said, um, did, does, does William Shatner, has William Shatner ever, you know, taken legal action? Because technically they're cashing in on his right to publicity. And with, uh, you know, the right clever sort of lawsuit, not saying that he should sue them, but that he probably has some case uh, for, you know, or did, or did they transform his, his face enough that it, it, it falls under fair use? I don't know. Okay, Jerry has an answer for Jerry me in knows. a second. Jerry he's going to tell me in a second. Yeah, he's, he, we, we've um, done several episodes of The Offering with uh, Halloween episodes. So, okay. Yeah. So the last thing I'll say about it, and, and you know, and the rest is history. Michael Myers is the face of William Shatner. Again, it's not, this is not, this is not some shocking revelation. This is very common. This is as common as Luke Skywalker being the thought, the son of Darth Vader in pop culture. Um what is interesting, though, is we were talking earlier about how Halloween, um, we were talking about, like, uh, I wish we lived in that parallel universe where we got that movie. And I've often felt that way about the Halloween films. I feel like we, I feel like the proof that we live in an alternate reality is that they decided to make 12 films with Michael Myers because it's so common. I say that I've said this a bunch of times on the channel, but it is so it so reminds me of that scene in Back to the Future Part Two when they're in when he's in Hill Valley Square, and he sees a, a sign for Jaws nineteen, and it's like there's some reality out there where they really did make nineteen Jaws films the exact same formula in the exact same kind of way, and I think we evidence that we live in an alternate reality is that we have literally have that many Halloweens because originally the idea was that after Halloween two. They were they were going to change directions, and season of the witch is the only proof that Halloween was going to turn into a, a an anthology franchise, which would have ruled. I would have loved that. I bet you, and there's another alternate universe somewhere where that that is a time honored tradition. Every year we have a new Halloween film that has come out. There's 30 years. It's just like James Bond. It's just like James Bond, except instead of there being 25 James Bond movies, there's like 25 Halloween films and. It's a different theme, just like American Horror Story every year. And we don't have it. And we live in this oh. weird place where we got. Yeah, Ryan Mur- I guess you're right. Ryan Murphy ended up doing that with like American Horror Story. Ryan Murphy literally was like, huh, that's a great idea. And then did it. And it's one of it's 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 not the longest running series on television, but it's it's past the decade mark and it's showing no signs of slowing down. In fact, it's spun off now into American crime story and American horror stories. So there's two spinoffs and they're still doing the original American horror story. So it's really, it's a testament to how much people love anthology concepts and why they really dropped the ball by not powering through the disappointment at the time of season of the witch. I will shut up now. Go ahead, Jerry. What were you going to say? Oh, there were, in 2018, before they did David Gordon Green's version of Halloween, this Halloween trilogy as we know it, one of the drafts that was predominant was doing a multiverse thing. And it was basically like there was going to be a shadow world. And in that shadow world, it contained the multiverses of all the different Halloween timelines. Like there's the timeline with Josh Hartnett. And in that, Josh Hartnett was going to play a cop. And he was basically going to shadow walk with Michael Myers through all these different dimensions and <laughs> see how it, it, dude, it, like, honestly, it was a batshit crazy Sounds script, like it. but I kind of want to see it. Like, 
you know, it is what it is, you know, things. But ultimately, going back to the whole Shatner thing, what ended up happening was uh, Shatner decided he's like, all right, I'm going to take some legal action right oh, around. He did. Time. He did. Huh. This was right around the time of H2O, which is, I want to say, like 97. So fucking Stan Winston came in and redesigned the Michael Myers mask. And there were there were the there were the Weinsteins, there were the you know all these different producers that were working on the film, and they all had say, and they kept changing the mask. And part of why they the mandate to have Stan Winston create a new mask was they were like, we don't know how this Shatner thing is going to go, so just in case, let's make the mask just different enough. Ultimately, sure. halfway through production. Like Shatner's just like, yeah, I'll take a lump sum payment. They gave him a couple of million dollars. They didn't have to do all that bullshit to begin with. They should have they should have just kept it looking like Shatner, you know. I don't know. You pay all that money to have fucking Stan Winston redesign a mask and then you who who would have known? What it what you know, but that's what all these stories he looked, are. Yeah, he looked goofy. The the um H two O Michael Myers looked really goofy. Yeah, and and, and they had these CGI it, right? The it's Rob changing. Zombie, the Rob Zombie masks look really great, and so did the David Gordon Green masks. I thought looked really yeah. good. Those are good masks. Scary yeah. AF, yeah. Um, so how about that? God, what were you, there was one other thing about what you were saying, and then I was gonna respond to that in terms of when you were talking about the eye cat. Um, Where kitty. What's the name of your cat, Jerry? Uh, this is Brooklyn. Brooklyn. Hi, Brooklyn. Um, Jesus, what was I thinking about? And it made, you made me think of, you were talking about the parallel. Oh, yeah, except that we, yeah, we ended up just getting, instead of getting all that variation, we just got the same thing. Oh, that's what I was going to say. All right, so I did have one idea that basically blended, it blended, I, I saw on this channel, I basically pitched my version of Halloween for 4.0. It was a pitch it movie podcast oh, of Hollywood of, of Halloween for four oh except it would have been more like Holly uh Hollywood Halloween four oh and basically it takes place in the real world where Jamie Lee Curtis is no 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 shit what was the thing no Laurie Strode was Laurie Strode was going on a book tour about how she survived the thing Michael Myers Finds out he actually does encounter William Shatner and skins his face nice. and then puts on William Shatner's actual face as the as the mask. And basically it turns into uh it turns into last action hero in a movie theater where she's like she's the only one who knows that 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 Michael Myers is there, and then they fight and the whole theater catches fire. I, there, it's like a seven-minute clip. It's somewhere on my channel. I forgot what I said, but I had a whole idea around around what I would do in that situation. You made me think of that when you said that just now. Basically, it was basically the idea of like her. She becomes a writer and she writes about her story, and and that actually does happen in the last Halloween movie, ironically enough. So I like that. I Can I? That uh, you just made me think of something. Uh, a fact. It's not a horror fact, but there's a lot of things I'm trying to button things up as we're wrapping up. Sure, but that, sure. As we, as we a, decline, uh, what's it called? Um, Final Descent. Final Descent. Is yeah. Me. So 
It has to do with multiverses because we were talking about multiverses. And it also has to do with Jamie Lee Curtis. Um, one of my favorite movies from last year, Everything Everywhere All at Once. Oh, Return, so good. Okay. Returning to theaters this weekend. Um, everyone go out there because it's amazing. But I got to meet those guys, the Daniels. Um, yeah, my friend, he, he, my friend Jake, once again, he works at um, uh, the Ghetto Film School where he gets uh, filmmaking students to meet filmmakers. And the Daniels showed up with uh, Stephanie Shu, um, and they gave like an hour and a half long, you know, uh, a seminar to these high school kids. And one of the things I learned uh, that from that seminar was the original script, the original conceived script of Everything Everywhere All at Once was a reunion for Jackie Chan and, and Michelle Yeoh. Oh, that would have been cool. And um, they, that's what they originally pitched. Um, that was the original draft, uh, original version of the first draft, um, and they had they actually had Jackie Chan as the lead um, originally um, with Michelle Yeoh, and so as they went on into production and or not into production yet but pre-production, Jackie Chan had to drop out. So they were like, oh, "What are we gonna do now? We still have Michelle Yeoh. That's still huge." So they they rejiggered the script and they made it. The the film was originally focused on Jackie and and um, it was a male lead instead of a female lead. Oh, and interesting. So as as drafts and drafts go on, they they're like, we still have Michelle Yeoh. So then they focused it on Evelyn, the character of Evelyn. Perfect. And they kept working on it and like, there's nothing here. We're like we're missing. So then they started focusing on the mother daughter relationship, um, but they just kept working on the drafts and drafts and drafts, but. In another multiverse of a movie about multiverses, there is a version of that where Jackie Chan and um, Michelle Yeoh are battling Jamie Lee Curtis through multi dimensions. <laughs> I do like the world where we live in, where Ki Hui Kwan is raking it up. Yeah, dude, I'm, I'm very happy for that, dude. Yeah. Hell yeah, hell yeah. Um, I'd like to thank my guests so much for coming on it was so nice to meet you jerry horror yo and thank you pleasure it was all mine and you know if you want more more of this stuff go check out the offering the link is in the description and i want to thank uh stone cold pete who is uh truly a podcast master's own right go check out the picture movie podcast and you know, just Pete, Pete is a man with many fingers and many pies, and he's just always doing cool stuff. And that's what I really admire about him greatly. He's, just, he's always out there and uh, just, a, just a really uh, bubbly, enthusiastic, just awesome dude doing his thing. Um, I want to let's close with one final fact. And this is another super well known fact, super well known. Everybody knows this, I think. It's pretty freaking well known. Um, uh, but much like Orson Welles, Orson Welles' Citizen Kane was the first film to ever show a ceiling. Um, the first film to ever show a flushing toilet was Anthony Hitch, Anthony Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho in 1960. So for almost 60 years. 60 years and thousands, think about the thousands of productions, the thousands of stories that have been told up until that point. 
not one of them ever showed a toilet flushing, probably for many reasons. But that is the first time that we see in cinematic history a toilet flush. And you think about how common that is. Like, not common, but like, it's something that is fairly, yeah, no, I I would say it's common. It's a common thing. You would you would see something like that. So also the first time anyone saw Janet Lee's giant dookie going down the toilet. That's right. So speaking of Janet of Jamie Lee Curtis. Right. Her mom. That's her yeah. mom. Totally forgot about that. So there is a legendary deleted scene. This is really something else. There's a legendary deleted scene where you know, um, after Janet Lee is stabbed to death in the shower, her bowels release, and just she just takes this giant steaming pile of shit and just comes shooting out of her brown eye, you know, all over her dead corpse and goes swirling down the drain of the shower. First time that ever happened in a film as well. Just giant bowel evacuating horseshit that came out of her butt. <laughs> and then the, the studio, which was already taking a, a <laughs> was already taking a risk on on this film, was like, we can't do that. <laughs> Alfie, you can't do that, buddy. We'll let you keep the the toilet flushing. <laughs> But you gotta take the dookie out. And so they cut out the scene. It's lost the time. They delete they destroyed the, the negative. And the next they time they didn't. He's like, as long as I get to keep the negative to jerk <laughs> off to in my own private <laughs> viewing of that was a good Hitchcock. Man. That was good Hitchcock. Um, see, Jerry Horror and Pete will return in the future where we do, instead of five obscure horror facts, we're going to do fake facts just like this where we talk about the ultimate, the alternate history <laughs> for popular brilliant. movies. Well, just like that. the one I just did just now, and that'll be that. And we'll do that at some point in the, in the, in the distant future. When uh, life is not so hectic, I'd like to again thank my 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 guests. Peace, hair grease. Check out the podcast. Check out riotstickers.com because that's where you're gonna find the best sticker deal. Go check out everything that everybody does. My Patreon, you know you love it. I'm not gonna do it for you now, and we're ending the show right now.